Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to Rethink, a podcast where we revisit past articles from the University of Malta's Think magazine. Looking at the pioneering work we have featured in the past, we catch up with the researchers to see how far they have come since they appeared in the magazine. My name is Chris, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Diva. Hello, and today in the studio with us, we have Professor Ray Alul, who came all the way from Gozo to present his research that is uh, carried out in the historical lighthouse. lighthouse. So can you tell us a bit, uh, how do you go about doing your research? Well, basically, we started monitoring uh, trace gases and pollution and the climate, that's to say temperature, humidity, pressure, wind speed, direction, etc., all the meteorological parameters in the central Mediterranean at Jordan Lighthouse in 1996, if I remember correctly. So that's 23 years ago. We started measuring initially ozone, which we found to be extremely high, and that was in a way to be expected because of the sun's photochemical activity in the Mediterranean. Further north, the concentrations are lower. Over here, they're very high, about 50 parts per billion. In a typical German city, for example, it would be about 15. So there's quite a difference. Then we progress to measuring carbon monoxide, sulfur dioxide. Now we measure all the trace gases, all the MET parameters. We measure all the aerosols. And this was instituted through three projects in 2010, uh, ERDF-078, where we got the initial funding, and then the Vamos Segura projects with our Italian counterparts in Sicily at INGV, where we put in further equipment. We now have a range of equipment which measures practically everything, and we've been measuring uh, continuously over the last 10 years all these parameters, plus the previous data, so we've got about 23 years of data. And it's uh, gathered by a box, as far as I understand it? Well, the instruments themselves are electronic, optical, electro-optical instruments, let's call them. Each one is very sophisticated. One that measures the four greenhouse gases, methane, carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide and water vapor, called the Picaro, is worth 100,000 euros. They're all like this, very expensive boxes of equipment. Essentially, they're running around the clock. We have four people employed, uh, the university employs four graduates on Gozo to keep the instruments running, to download the data, to analyze it, and to pass the data to the World Meteorological Organization. And this we do continually, and I oversee the project uh, as necessary, essentially. You also receive uh, data from uh, the automatic information system from the ships. Yes, we are part of the AIS system in the Mediterranean, which picks up the transponders of shipping data. The whole setup is based in Cyprus, if I remember correctly. And we were able to measure the number of ships passing through the Sicily-Malta channel. It essentially amounts to approximately 85,000 ships, that is to say 230 ships per day, going through the channel. Ships burn heavy fuel oil, because that is the cheapest. It's the oil that was previously used in the Maltese power station before it switched to gas. It's very, very polluting. It emits a lot of nasty trace gases like sulfur dioxide, nitrogen oxides, plus a lot of dirty black particulates. A ship's plume can be about 80 miles wide and 100 miles behind it, so you are able to measure it and a lot of the pollution we measure is in fact coming from the shipping essentially so when these ships are in like international waters is there no clean air kind of acts that they need to kind of curtail or is it a bit of a wild west where they can just do what they want a little bit it was a bit of a wild west essentially they are in international waters they can do whatever they like 
they are only uh, bound to follow IMO rules, International Maritime Organization rules, with which all ships are registered. Now, IMO has decreed that as from 1st January 2020, the amount of sulfur in the heavy fuel oil is normally 3.5%. This has to come down to 0.5%. So, through our monitoring of the emissions, we hope over the next year or so to see a strong decrease in the sulfur dioxide being emitted, which will at least be a big step forward. There are also political uh, discussions underway at the moment between France, Italy, Malta included, Greece, etc. to try and designate the Mediterranean as a emission-controlled area, same as the Baltic or the North Sea, which are much cleaner. There they can only burn diesel oil, but of course the cost of the ship owners shoots up because burning marine diesel oil is far, far more expensive than heavy fuel oil. So Professor Lul's team wrote an article for THINK, June 2017 issue, about these trends in uh, pollution. Let's hear what they had to say. Stuck in the Middle with the Fumes by Cassie Camilleri. Since the 1960s, heavy fuel oil has reigned supreme as king of the maritime fuels. It was efficient and cheap. It was spread far and wide. International shipping boomed on its success. Even today, the industry handles 90% of the world's trade volume. For many, heavy fuel oils is the lifeblood of the maritime shipping industry, but it has a dark side. Its high sulfur content at 3.5% and damaging byproducts such as soot, aerosols, sulfur dioxide, nitrous oxide, and ozone make high fuel oil a carcinogenic nightmare. Emissions expert James Corbett of the University of Delaware calculates that 60,000 people worldwide die annually due to the toxic fumes emitted by ships. He also notes that the majority of those deaths come from the coastlines of Europe, East Asia and South Asia. Malta's political arena continues to light up with the debate around cleaner energy. Following elections in 2013, the government oversaw a shift in energy production, away from coal and oil. Now, with the Delimara power plant in action, the country largely runs on gas, but the high fuel oil problem in shipping failed to even be mentioned. When considering how the relatively narrow gap between Sicily and Gozo receives a quarter of all the world's ships passing through, and how the vast majority are still using high fuel oils, it would seem like a conversation worth having. A team of experts based in the scenic lighthouse in Gozo would certainly agree. The Jordan Lighthouse at the Gozo campus of the University of Malta is one of the very few still functioning lighthouses in Malta. It is on the top of all tourist maps out there, but to atmospheric physicist Professor Raymond Ilu and his team, it is much more than a tourist attraction. Since the 90s, the lighthouse has played a crucial role in identifying the pollutants around the Maltese islands. Before then, there was no knowledge or data collected on the subject. It was a black box, says Ilu, so even the tiniest of steps was a leap. The outfit started with just three instruments, each of them focused on a different molecule, ozone, sulfur dioxide and carbon monoxide. Since then, vast upgrades have been made thanks to some well-placed funds. Now their repertoire includes analyzers for nitrous oxides and aerosols. Aiding the cause are automatic identification systems, which are now a must on all ships, thanks to the International Maritime Organization. This device allows for position tracking and collision avoidance, but its data can also be used for research purposes. By combining it with steam, 
a complex mathematical model borrowed from Finland that assesses ships' traffic emissions. The team have now calculated the speed ships are travelling at, the amount of fuel they are using, and the volume of exhaust fumes they are emitting. Assessing a 200 km by 200 km square around Malta, environmental engineer Dr. Francel Atsupadi and doctoral student Martin Saliba explain how 1,774,448 ship data points showing 84,500 ships movements were detected in that box alone. To put things in perspective, Ilu provided a quick analogy. One big tanker that passes by has an engine of about 80 megawatts. A Maltese power plant outputs a maximum of 450 megawatts. So, a tanker is a fifth of that. But we get 200 ships of that size passing by motor, like that going through daily. It's like having a couple of hundred mini power stations going past every day, emitting sulfur dioxide and everything else a power plant would emit. We've done away with the heavy fuel power stations, but we still have these ships. We still have the big problem, he reiterates. The reality is that kilotons of fumes are coming over Malta from ships going through the Mediterranean. According to the latest estimates from the group, the 200 kilometer square surrounding the country is suffering. 50.9 kilotons of nitrous oxide, 30.3 kilotons of sulfur dioxide, three kilotons of carbon monoxide, along with the devastating 2,080 kilotons of carbon dioxide, say Saliba, as the senior technical officer at Jordan. The solution? Declare the Mediterranean as Sulfur Emission Control Area, or SECA. Currently, ships and other marine vehicles are free to use whatever fuel they want in international waters. They're only required to switch to less harmful fuels when docking in particular European ports. This makes high-fuel oil the choice of most, thanks to its low price point compared to distilled fuels. The only way to change this, says Elu, is for the Mediterranean countries, including those in North Africa, to come together and declare the Mediterranean an SECA. SECAs are sea areas where stricter controls are established to lower the level of airborne emissions. Widespread concerns about air pollution have led to the successful adoption of SECA standards in a number of places, including the Baltic Sea and the North Sea. SECAs set the sulfur limit in fuels at 0.1%. Normally, it is a whopping 3.5%. The trouble is that maritime transport is big business, and many countries are still making a lot of money out of it, says Ilu, including Malta. Our island alone has four bunkering areas where ships anchor to refuel and trade fuel. These areas are located just five kilometers from the Maltese coastline. Malta, much like Cyprus, also brings in hefty revenue from ships' registration fees. This makes our own government hesitant to move on the issue. Having 23 countries agree to a solution will be a very big challenge. Elu believes that the move to restrict heavy fuel oils and sulfur emissions can only be achieved through Brussels. This is an international situation. You have to have France, Italy, Malta and all the states in the eastern Mediterranean agreeing. Their ships would have to switch to either diesel oil, which is a lot cleaner because it doesn't have sulfur, or liquefied natural gas which can reduce carbon dioxide and nitrous oxide emissions by 25% and completely eliminate sulfur dioxide. The catch? It'll cost them a lot more, Elu says. But if the Baltics can do it, why can't we? While the steam predictions may be as good as gold for some, the team has laid out an entire journey that will make the data bulletproof. Saliba says that the next steps is to obtain the ship's track from steam and put them through another model, known as WRF-CHEM. It analyzes the dispersion of ship pollution across Malta. 
Saliba expects Hara and Shawtowns to be receiving the brunt of it, but in total, Alu estimates that we are absorbing from about 20 to 30% of the fumes measured. The results from WRF Chem will then be compared to the actual observations at the Jordan Lighthouse. From a technical point of view, this will be absolute proof as to what is happening, says Alu. Taking things a step further, the team will then work with medical experts to try to see if there is a link between the dispersion of exhaust fumes and the location and rate of disease and adverse health effects. The approach will help determine exactly how many people are suffering because of the toxic fumes. In terms of pollution, these ships are doing more damage than traffic. Traffic pollution doesn't contain these levels of sulphur, Elu says. And yet, most of us are unaware of the danger. We might not be able to do anything about natural pollutants like Etna and dust events from Africa, but we can do something about the ships. Welcome back. We're discussing shipping emissions today. So have you had any updates in your research about what it's like? Essentially, we measure things like the temperature, the wind speed, the direction, uh, humidity, etc. And from our analysis of the 23 years of data, it looks, if we continue to burn fossil fuels at this rate, as if the Mediterranean is headed for a temperature increase of between 3 and 5 degrees by the end of the century. It's not very far away. We're talking of a time span of 30 to 80 years from now. The sea level will also rise by about 2 meters, which will be catastrophic. We need to do something about curbing these emissions, especially the carbon dioxide emissions and the methane emissions worldwide within the next uh, 10 to 12 years. If we don't do that, we're in trouble. So what is the alternatives like? Are we going to cut down on the amount of shipping? Do we get new boats? Do we get new fuel? What is the way forward? Basically, the way forward, first of all, we need to switch to uh, gas as an alternative to heavy fuel oil that is much cleaner and will reduce the carbon dioxide emissions by a factor of four. It's only an intermediate step. Eventually, we have to go to hydrogen. Hydrogen can be made from water, and when hydrogen is burnt in an engine or used to create electricity in a fuel cell, it will essentially only give us a byproduct water. So you start with water, use the sun's energy to make hydrogen, you go back to water, and you essentially you've completed the cycle without any byproducts which are dirty. And that way you're not emitting any more carbon dioxide. That is the only way forward that we can see, essentially. Do you see that being feasible? Do you see all these shipping companies deciding to, to make new boats when they've got perfectly functional, in quotes, well, does boats the, that are doing the job as yeah. well as they had ever been doing for the last 50 years or so? Yes, that is the problem, of course. We're up against the present economic situation that the world has adapted to. The oil lobby is extremely strong. We use billions of barrels of oil per annum that come from all the oil-rich states. It's an easy way of doing it. The engines are well developed, but the amount of carbon dioxide we are emitting cannot be absorbed by the planet anymore. There is an equilibrium, you see. The planet absorbs a certain amount, you create a certain amount. So long as the population of the world was small, just a few million people, and we didn't have too many industrial emissions, that was fine. It was fine up until about 1750, 1800. After that, the Industrial Revolution started and the emissions shot up. Plus, the population of the world is now 7.5 billion 
and by 2050 is going to be roughly 11 billion. And the planet just can't take it anymore. We have to reduce. We have to reduce the populations to a sensible level. We have to reduce the emissions to a sensible level at which they are absorbed by the planet's crust. The oceans contain a lot of carbon dioxide and they are able to absorb a lot. But they cannot absorb the amounts we are emitting, basically. So no more half measures. We need no, full no. We need scale. we need to do something, and we need to do it very quickly within the next ten to fifteen years, essentially. But from what I've read in the International Maritime Organization's documents, for now ships will be allowed to carry exhaust gas cleaning systems. Yes, those systems do exist. They do help. My opinion is that the progress in this area is extremely slow. We need to hurry it up. If the world doesn't go to a carbon-neutral industrial system by 2050, then we are in very serious trouble. If the Greenland ice cap melts, we're looking at a rising sea level of between 6 and 10 meters. And that's not very far away. If East Antarctica melts, the South Pole, then you're looking at a sea level rise of between 70 and 80 meters, which will drown all the major cities in the world. We simply cannot go on with this. The carbon dioxide levels haven't been this high for 600,000 years. We know that from the fossil record. We have to do something. Climate, as Greta Thunberg says, this is an emergency. We we just can't go on. You know, it's, it's already very late. The Paris targets are going to be missed, almost certainly. And are you optimistic about the new system, the new sulfur limits? They will come into effect, I think, yes, and they will help, without a doubt. At least they will reduce local pollution in the Mediterranean. The biggest emitters are essentially cars. They burn petrol or diesel and the result is carbon dioxide, essentially, from the catalytic converters. We need to go away from the fossil fuels towards electric cars using hydrogen and a fuel cell and an electric motor, essentially. The electric cars which are being produced at the moment are an intermediate step. They help because they have batteries, although the range is very limited. It's only a couple of hundred kilometers at best without an AC. When you turn on your car AC, the range comes down enormously. You mustn't forget that. And we use AC in the Mediterranean all the time. So they are not really a solution. It's easy for the manufacturers to make them. All they have to do is adapt the present systems. And they have come up with some very clever designs. There are hybrids. They all help, but they are not the ultimate solution. The ultimate solution, as far as we can see at the moment, is to move to hydrogen as a fuel. It's doable. Hydrogen is no more dangerous than petrol. It has to be kept at a low temperature, minus 196 degrees, or in gaseous form. There are cars running around in California that use hydrogen gas because there are hydrogen filling stations in California. Hydrogen can be made either from water or fossil fuels. With fossil fuels, you get carbon dioxide as a byproduct, so we don't wish to go down that route. But they can be made from seawater by electrolyzing it using PV panels to generate electricity. That would be a clean system, essentially. And that's where we have to go. The IMO guidelines also mention that uh, ships uh, will be banned from uh, carrying non-compliant heavy fuel oil. So they cannot take some of these fuels and change them in international waters. But then, as we know, Malta is also involved, according to some 
documents and some reports in a fuel smuggling operation across the Mediterranean. So how do you think implementation and enforcement can be ensured when there's already so much chaos in international waters? It's not a question of chaos. I mean, it's well known that there was a fuel smuggling operation from Libya to Europe. This was apparently being carried out by a couple of Maltese rogues. It is not something which Malta officially sanctions, of course. It's illegal. It has been, uh, to a great extent, stopped. Malta has brought UN sanctions against the two persons in question. Russia is holding back, but this is the usual politics between states at the United Nations. Malta is not to blame. The Europe is not to blame either. These smuggling operations have to stop, essentially. And the United States has now gotten involved, and apparently there are ways of stopping the whole business and uh, sanctions are coming into effect. So I'm not too worried about that. The official route is becoming clearer and will be held to. Ships will switch to cleaner fuels, yes, but again they have to go to cleaner fuels I think by 2050 or thereabouts and that is really much too late. The world can't wait. If we don't take action within the next 10 to 12 years, we're going to go over a tipping point, at which point we cannot control the climate anymore. Then what we can do is what we call geoengineering, spread sulfur particles around the earth in the stratosphere to reflect the sun's rays and lower the temperature. But again, if we get something wrong, these are very complex systems. If we get something wrong, we could go the other way and freeze the world rather than let it become too warm. These geoengineering methods have been suggested by some very reputable scientists, including Paul Crutzen, who was in Malta a couple of times in the past. I had worked with him in 93. But again, we have to be very careful before we move to this sort of thing. You don't get a second it's, chance, it's, do you? No, it's the last resort. It's the last resort. We need to clean up our acts, essentially. And since you've been doing this for decades now... 24 mm, years. Atmospheric physics and chemistry. chemistry yeah. Do you feel that policymakers are listening to your evidence? They know about it. We have had ministers in my office and I've explained to them exactly what's going on. But it's not so easy for them to move because of the vast financial interests involved. Not just in Malta, worldwide. I mean, as I said, the oil lobby is a big part of the economy, the world economy, and we really need to find an alternative system that will cut down on fossil fuel emissions, essentially. We have to cut down CO2 and methane emissions to the point where the Earth can absorb them. And that limit is very, very low. At the moment, we're much, much higher. I don't know offhand how much higher, but a lot more than normal. So when you measure all these gases and uh, when you take all the data that your equipment collects, how do you go about distilling and separating how much of it comes from actual ships and how much could be from cars or from other sources of pollution on the islands? We do not look at local sources. We only look at local sources when the wind is from the southeast, and that is only a relatively small percentage of the time in Malta, about less than 10% of the days of the year, if I remember correctly. Mostly the wind is from the north-northwest. From the north-northwest, we're looking at the whole Mediterranean, so we cut out the local emissions. All these data are downloaded every minute, they are held on the university servers, and at the end of every year 
the data is sent to the World Meteorological Organization. WMO then distills all the information from 150 such stations worldwide and they come up with the IPCC reports which are published every five years. Then these form the basis of things like the Paris summit, the Rio summit, etc. where climate change is discussed and where the scientists put forward what is happening. Unfortunately, the politics does not follow what the scientists recommend. There is a big time lag. It's understandable because the world has grown up on fossil fuels and to change such a system is not going to be trivial. But if mankind is to survive, there is no choice. We're looking at, as I said earlier, three to five degrees centigrade by the end of this century. Two meters rise in sea level and if it goes on further than that, then there will be even more disastrous consequences. If Antarctica melts as well, then God help us all. The world's map will be changed radically. How do you see the Paris Agreement sort of like, are we going to meet those targets? Do we No, think, we're, at the moment we're not going to. What's going to be targets. our new goals, do you think then? Do we just re. We, we have to cut down on fossil fuels. We we're trying to keep the temperature increase down to one and a half degrees centigrade. It's very difficult. The world's temperature has increased by one degree since the Industrial Revolution, since 1800, in other words, roughly. It's going to increase by another one and a half degrees over the next century until 2100. If we don't cap our fossil fuel emissions, it's going to increase by between 3 and 5 degrees. And that is going to be totally disastrous. And then we're going to have the migrations of peoples northwards, as low-lying areas flood. The poorest nations are going to be hit hardest. India, Bangladesh, the Seychelles, the Marshall Islands, all the low-lying areas. In Malta, you can imagine what will happen if the sea level goes up by two meters. All the low-lying areas will be flooded. If it's more than that, there won't be much left. Could you give an example? For example, would Dingley Cliffs be sticking out? Dingley Cliffs would be sticking out. Mjar Harbour and Gozo will be flooded. Mm. Grand Harbour might be okay, but Marsa will extend much further inland, almost across the island. The southeast Marsa Schlock as well large portions will be drowned, all the low-lying areas essentially. Salini Bay, that will just become one area of water. And apart from that, you have to see what the storm surge does, what happens when there is a storm. Sea levels then are much higher, the number of hurricanes is increasing, the frequency of hurricanes is increasing, the east coast of the United States is being affected more and more. We see this in the news every day over the last few years. President Trump, of course, doesn't believe this, but it's the United States which is being hit hardest, actually. Do you think that now that wealthier countries are being impacted by these natural disasters, will other nations step forward? The developing countries have had to deal with this sort of crisis for years. Well, the industrialised countries are best uh, suited to dealing with climate change because they have the technology and the know-how. The United Kingdom has, to its credit, switched over to... I think 36% renewables at the moment. Germany is still lagging far behind. They made an unfortunate mistake in closing the nuclear power stations. They're burning lignite, which is brown coal. They know this is a problem and they have to move to renewables. And I believe they are meeting about this at present. I saw some articles. But all the nations have to move to burning less fossil fuels, even if we have to go to nuclear energy. Pretty powerful stuff there. We all need to, I don't know, everyone needs to try. doesn't yeah. need to be perfect. Thank you very much for your time today. You're uh, welcome. Thank you, listeners, and we'll see you next time. That was all from Rethink for today. 
Tell us what you think about the episode by commenting on ThinkUM on Facebook, ThinkUni on Instagram, or ThinkUniMalta on Twitter. Rethink is produced by Think Magazine in collaboration with Campus FM. If you are listening to us from outside of Malta, you can find Think on isuu.com forward slash thinkuni. Our theme music is by Princess Wonderful. You can find a link to her profile in the show notes. Your hosts, Daivara Pachkaiter and Chris Stiles. Our sound technician is Carmo Grek. Find us on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you for listening and bye for now.